0: It's amazing what kind of mess people can get themselves into, isn't it? I uh, heard about a soldier that was serving the United States in the Afghan uh, theater of war, and he got a Dear John letter uh, from his girlfriend back home. And to add insult to injury, she had in her Dear John letter, uh, by the way, please send to me the picture I gave you so I can use it to announce my new engagement in the county paper. <laughs> well, it just devastated him. His uh, army buddies and his barracks went throughout the barracks and a few others and uh, asked uh, other soldiers to donate a picture of their girlfriends. And they put them in a box and told him to write a note to her and said, Please take your picture from among these and return the rest, because for the life of me, I can't remember who you are. (laughs) You know, that's not the first and last time that there has been that kind of confusion in relationships. And that kind of retaliation and revenge and chaos in relationships, ladies and gentlemen, uh, is exactly what we have in Genesis chapter 16. Uh, This morning, I want to address the subject, how to ruin your life in the Middle East at the same time. And that is precisely what Abram did, and Sarai did, and Hagar did in Genesis chapter 26. Back in uh, Genesis 12 and 15, God had promised Abram a great nation. That was 10 years before Genesis 16. And now we find ourselves in Genesis 16, and Abram doesn't even have a son, a biological heir. And so Sarah does what many did in that day. She recommends that Abram have uh, a marriage and a relationship with Hagar, her servant. And women would often do that in those days. It was devastating uh, beyond uh, bearing it, uh, not to bear children in that day. We shouldn't think that today, but they did that uh, back in uh, that day. And Uh, the woman would select someone. The man would not, but the woman would select someone by whom she would have a child through that woman and give the man that child as an heir. And the woman, who could not bear, would end up being the mother of the child. Well, that all falls apart later in the chapter. But that's precisely what Sarai did. Sarai selected Hagar, and Hagar had a baby for Abram. And about the time she discovered that she was expecting She began to look down her nose at Sarai. Now, who in the world told her to do that? I don't know. That was nuts. But she did. She got got uppity because she could have a child and Sarai couldn't. And Sarai looked at Abram in verse number 4 and 5 and blamed it all on him. Okay, That's not the last time that happened, but blamed it all on him. And uh, he became responsible for that. And she mistreated Hagar. And Hagar fled into the wilderness And it was in that time that God met her with a powerful word of grace. The problem is, is that that has resulted by chapter 21 in Isaac's birth in 14 million Jews around the world today and 442 Arabs who've come from Hagar's baby boy who have been fighting each other for millenniums. Abram really damaged his own life in the Middle East And has occupied the attention of the world with just that one compromise. Just one. And that's what we find beginning in Genesis chapter 16. And I want you to join there with me and read beginning in verse number 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go into my maid, and perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And Abram heeded the voice of Sarai. And Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband Abram to be his wife, after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan. So he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. Then Sarai said to Abram, My wrong be upon you. I gave you my maid into your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, I became despised in her eyes. And then some of the biggest sounding spiritual nonsense ever uttered, The Lord judged between you and me. Now, he was going to, but she got super spiritual after her foolish compromise and didn't before. She's not the last one to do that. So Abram said to Sarai, Indeed, your maid is in your hand. Do to her as you pleased. And when Sarai dealt harshly with her, she fled from her presence. Fled from her presence. Here's what you've got in this conflict. Sarai attacks, Abram withdraws, and Hagar flees. And that's oftentimes the way people deal with conflict. Because of Abram's and Sarai's and Hagar's compromise, the world has had untold misery And death and ruin visited on just about a weekly basis somewhere because of this one compromise. May I say to you, it is never permissible or wise to compromise the Word of God. You can avoid an awful lot of misery, by the way, and you can secure an awful lot of blessing by dismissing and restraining yourself from compromise and pursuing a life of obedience to God. And that's what the text is tailored to teach us this uh, morning. Well, how, do, how in the world then do I avoid compromise? How, how do I avoid ruining my life in the whole Middle East or at least Northeast Georgia with, over the generations with just one decision of compromise? How, how can I avoid that, restrain myself and instead secure a life of blessing? Well, there are several things truths that rise from the text. And the first one happens to be uh, this one. We enter compromise for persuasive reasons. Oh, there's some persuasive reasons found here in the text. There are religious reasons. Back in chapter 15, verse 4 through 6, uh, God had told Abram and reiterated to him, which he did six times in Abram's life, you're going to have a son and someone from your own body is going to be your son, and I'm going to send him in that way. So Abram's had an encounter with God, but what Abram has done is that Abram has taken this promise and he has stretched it to satisfy Sarai's vanity and her impatience with God. You know, a lot of people do that with religion. There are people who use religion in order to resist change where they need to change and to justify change where they don't need to change. That's precisely what happens so often. Sometimes religion can be entirely misused because people end up misunderstanding the Word of God. And let me just tell you what happens so often. Here's generally what happens. Somebody will say, well, I prayed about it. They didn't study the Word, but somehow this prayer experience eliminates any need to look into the Word of God. Oh, it's amazing what people will do thinking they prayed about it. Now, their pastor and their staff, uh, their family, the Holy Spirit within says, knock it off. But let me tell you what they do. They decide what they're going to do and they try to justify it with a layer of prayer is precisely what happens. And, and, and here's what uh, they expect the pastor to do when they ask him. I had this happen a few months ago, by the way, uh, by someone who's left the area. But... Um, uh, uh I, I, I was asked, is this a good decision that I'm making? And um, uh, I, I was really concerned about it. And, and the remark was, well, well, I prayed about it. And my, my thought was, well, wait a minute. Hold on just a minute. I, I'm supposed to take all my theological education and set that aside because you prayed about it. I'm supposed to take all my ministry experience on staffs and with people since 1985 and, and set that aside because you prayed about it. And I'm supposed to take my prayer time every day that, that I've been trying to be real robust in and set that aside because you, you prayed a few moments about it. And I'm supposed to take my personal Bible study, not just my sermon Bible study, but my personal Bible study and set that aside because you prayed about it. And, and then I'm supposed to take, I'm supposed to take the 20 hours I spend in sermon preparation every week and, and set that aside because cause you prayed about it. Do you see how outrageous that is? Now, the truth is, a pastor can still be wrong, but ladies and gentlemen, just because we've already made up our minds to do something, you've got to understand, no foolish decision will ever become wise because we prayed about it. Foolishness and disobedience to the Word of God is still foolishness and disobedience no matter how many spiritual exercises we go through to justify it. Oh my goodness, how many foolish marriages have begun with the same justification? And how many foolish financial decisions we have seen that have begun with the same justification? Uh, Listen, in churches and among Christians, just about every foolish decision has been prayed about. Because we use oftentimes religion as a covering to do what we've already decided to do. Instead of coming before God and saying, God... I really want to do this, but i got to be honest with you. I'm not sure it's the right thing, and so I'm going to surrender it. I'm going to look for confirmation or rejection in your word and with wise counsel is precisely what I'm going to do, Oh God. So we enter compromise for persuasive religious reasons and marital reasons. You see, Abram's wife was behind this in verse 1. She had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Hagar, take her and have a child by her in verse 2. So his wife was in favor of it. There are many commentators who think that what uh, Moses is trying to do here is to display a second Garden of Eden. So there are marital reasons. Then there are social reasons. Uh, In that day, it was pretty common to do this. If a woman couldn't have a child, she would select someone and give her to her husband. And uh, the woman, the barren woman, would have a child by this woman. And that child would become her son and his son, and that's oftentimes what they did, but that violates the pattern that God set in Genesis 1 and 2 with one man, one woman for life between Adam and Eve. And so there are cultural reasons. In other words, you have to understand, there was no one in their culture or society disagreeing with their decision. In fact, there are probably a lot of folks standing around them in their culture and society, maybe even in their household saying, hey, that, that's smart, that's wise, so their culture and society was on the side of them. So, um, so there are good social reasons. Then there's some timing reasons. It had been 10 years since God made that promise to Abram, and they're having to wait. And what she doesn't realize is God's going to make them wait another 15 years. Romans 4 said, God only sent Isaac, the promised heir, after both their bodies were as good as dead. Now Sarah's was. Now, Abram was not. He could still bear children, but he was, God was waiting for them to both get to the age where there was no human explanation for the conception and birth of Isaac. He was waiting for both of them to have a walker. That's what he's doing. Folks, let me say to you, listen to me carefully. Please, oh please, oh please, oh please, in a million, million different ways. Compromise will always look reasonable. Compromise will always look persuasive, sensible, and rational. This is why we call it temptation. It will never appear as a boogeyman. It will never appear as a frightening thing. It will always appear as reasonable, rational, persuasive. It will sometimes appear to be compassionate. Compromise will. About marital and sexual issues and about... Um, financial issues, it will always appear to be beneficial. Every embezzler thought so. Every compromise of God's word will look like a temptation. However, sometimes in a carnal state, in a carnal world that is drifted from God, obedience to God will look foolish and rigid and outrageous and impractical and nonsensical and sometimes even mean. Now, that's no justification for being mean and obnoxious. Oh, no. But that's oftentimes what people will say about you whenever you decide you're going to be firm and not compromise and obey the Word of God. In other words, compromise will not frighten you. It will relieve you. Compromise will not, uh, compromise will not repel you. It will entice you. And that is precisely what compromise of God's Word does. Uh, th- that can be true not only with behavior issues, that can be true also about theology. Jesus Christ is the only way. Um, there's only one God. Salvation is by Jesus Christ in Christ alone, in repentance and faith, without regard for virtue or works, which are really a myth and fantasy on the part of the human race. Um, there is a heaven and it is only for those who've repented and placed faith in Christ. Uh, There is a hell for all the rest. Uh, Oftentimes these things can appear to be that way from a carnal perspective, a perspective that looks at things merely the way failing men and women see them, but not from the perspective of our God. So what do I do? Just decide before it ever approaches you, before you're ever allured to compromise, that you're going to do the will of God no matter what the cost. Hey, by the way, you know what the will of God is? God's will is what you would do if you could see everything God sees. If you could know everything God knows, that's what you would do. That's God's will. The problem is we've got limited vision and we've got limited sight. But God does not. Look, we don't know what's going to happen in the next year. We don't know what's going to happen in the next quarter. We don't know what's going to happen in the next month. We don't know what's going to happen in the next week. We don't know what's going to happen in the next day. We don't know what's going to happen tonight. We don't know what's going to happen in the next 60 seconds. So why be so optimistic about compromise, especially when the God who does know the next year, month, week, and day does know? You see, if we knew everything that God knows, if we could see everything that God sees, we would choose His will every time. We don't see that, but God does. It is night to us, but it's light to Him. The darkness is not darkness to Him. It, in fact, it shines as bright as day according to Psalms 139.12. God sees it. God knows where He's going. God knows your future, every detail to, uh, uh, about it, and He guides you Accordingly compromise them. We enter it for persuasive reasons. You got to understand that first truth and not be shocked and surprised when it is so manipulative and so mischievous when it approaches you. But there's a second thing. We not only enter compromise for persuasive reasons, but we experience compromise. We experience compromise as painful ruin. Oh, there's ruin all over the text. Beginning in verse four, there's marital ruin. Hagar conceived, and when Hagar saw that she had conceived, Sarai became despised in her eyes. So there's conflict. This is the first marriage triangle in the entire Bible, and it's a very, very sad scene. Uh, uh, There's malicious ruin as well. She became despised in her eyes. So under the same roof, two women who desperately wanted children are battling each other, and they're battling each other over their status with Abram. And then there is misdirected ruin. Verse 5, Sarah said to Abraham, my wrong be upon you, which is an impossibility. I gave my maid into your embrace, and when she saw she conceived, I became despised in her eyes. The, Lord's ju- the Lord judged between uh, me and you. In other words, Sarai becomes really spiritual and hyper-spiritual about it like so many people do when they compromise. And they use God to justify their compromises and to relieve their consciences instead of coming clean before God. And so she misdirects the blame. And then there's male ruin, verse 6. Look how Abram checks out in verse 6. He withdraws. He can't stand the tension, and he just abandons it. He says to Sarai, Indeed, your maid is in your hand, Do to her as you please. Well, hold on. Hagar is carrying his child and he just backs out. He bails out. Does any of that sound familiar? That's precisely what happens in the text. That's what Abram does. There is a decline, a disintegration of male responsibility in the text. And then there is mean ruin. Just plain meanness. When Sarai dealt harshly with her, she fled from her presence. In other words, Hagar... In, in a very upset moment, where she's not really thinking straight, sees that life in the desert on the road between where they are and Egypt, her home, is preferable to staying in the home of one of the wealthiest men in the world. That's how bad the meanness was. Ruin on every hand. Abram's life, John Phillips says, is now an entanglement... So snarled and twisted that 4,000 years have not unraveled it. And here begins the Jewish-Arab conflict in the text. No compromise has ever resulted in more holiness. No compromise has ever resulted in more peace. No compromise has ever resulted in more missions and evangelism and people coming to Christ. In other words, all the values of the kingdom of God are undermined and stilted and hindered with compromise. Not one of them is advanced. And I can hear in the distance Abram and Sarai and Hagar saying, Amen preacher, preach it. So you've got to count the cost, and there will be a cost to compromise. But there's a third truth, and that is, thank God, we exit compromise with perceptive remedies. God knows and sees. Oh, and there's a remarkable statement and name given to God in verse 13. There's some who say, this is the only time someone names God. Usually, God is naming himself in the text. Verse 13, uh, when we get there, we'll unveil that. God knows and God sees it all. He knows and sees uh, the distressed location of Hagar. Verses 7 and 8. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, Sarah's maid. Now He's about to ask a question, and he's not asking for information. He knows the answer to the question, but she doesn't. Where have you come from? Where did Hagar come from? One of the wealthiest homes on the planet. One of the safest homes on the planet. Previous chapter, uh, two chapters in chapter 14, Abram had just whipped four kings. And she's leaving that. So that's where she's come from. Where are you going? Well, I'm going back to my home in Egypt on this desert road as a new expectant mother where there is no water, there is no food, there is no protection from bandits and the elements and beasts. God knew where she was, but Hagar didn't. Hagar was in a mess, and God found her. Actually, the angel of the Lord found her, and it becomes clear that it's God himself in verse number 10. Do you know who the angel of the Lord is? Angel can be translated messenger or word. In John 1, it calls Jesus the Word. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. In the beginning was the messenger. In the beginning was the angel of the Lord. Jesus Christ makes a pre-Bethlehem visit to Hagar, intervenes, and tries to take care of her. He knew where... Listen. He found her in verse 7. He knows where she is And friend, I've got to tell you, I don't know how you've messed things up. I don't know, maybe you're messing up northeast Georgia now. I don't know. But God can find you. No matter how deep you've buried yourself in a mess, God knows where you are. There's a great day of remedy coming because God sees your distressed location. But that's not all. He also sees the desperate need in verse 9. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand this desert road with little water little food amongst the wild beasts even though it's taking you back to your home is not preferable and better than the most wealthy and secure home in that region with Abram God knew her desperate need and he sent her back now this was counterintuitive and what God is speaking to your heart today may be counterintuitive it may appear to be unreasonable it may appear to be no fun. It may appear to be difficult. And everything within you is resisting the will of God. It may be counterintuitive, but if it's the word of the living God, do it anyway. God sees God sees her distressed or her desperate need. And then God also sees her delightful future. Verse number 10. Look at this wonderful promise. Uh, much like the promise he made to Abram. The angel of the Lord, third mention of him, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly. Well, that's what he's told Abram back in chapter 12 and chapter 15. So, Hagar, I am going to bless you. This child that you have is a child of Abram. And I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to multiply your descendants exceedingly. And eventually, her son, Ishmael, gives birth and raises boys, and they're 12 princes over his people. I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall not be counted for the multitude. There is a delightful future ahead. And listen, if you listen to God, re-embrace his word, Surrender to obedience to Him. There's a delightful future for you. It doesn't have to be dark any longer. It doesn't have to be chaotic any longer. It doesn't have to be laden with guilt any longer. It doesn't have to be covered with dark clouds any longer. It can be full of a delightful future. God is the master of delightful futures. With any marriage, with any family, with any work, With any relationship, any neighborhood, any community, any section of a state, any nation, any world, God can do it with a delightful future. Oh, there's more. God offers her grace and a remedy even though he sees her dangerous son. Now, verse 11 and 12 is not very complimentary of the baby boy that she's carrying. In fact, I had a dear colleague when I was at Southwestern who was from Lebanon. His name was Dr. Tony Malouf. He ran our Islamic Studies program where we trained missionaries to reach Muslim peoples around the world. Funny thing about Tony is that he was from Lebanon but grew up in France. He spoke multiple languages and was quite a missionary and scholar. His bachelor's degree was in chemical engineering so anytime he went through security he got pulled off every time it's exactly what happened to him and he got patient with it used it for an opportunity for ministry and witness but uh, Tony said something to me that I thought um, of and remembered when I was reading verses 11 and 12 in a faculty meeting one day I asked him I said Tony why is it that there's just so much chaos among the Palestinians Why can't they get their stuff together? Now, by the way, most of them have their stuff together in Israel. Ninety percent of the tourism industry is made up of Palestinians, and they're sweet, lovely people. They're neutral. They consider themselves Israelis. But in the Gaza Strip, it's different. And I asked him, why can't they get their stuff together? He said, you have to understand about some of them. They never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. That's what you're going to think about in verses 11 and 12. There's also another piece of information. If you're in the world today and you are the victim of Muslim terrorism or violence, most likely you are a Muslim yourself. Most of the people who die at the hand of other Muslims are not Americans or Europeans or Christians. That does happen at times. But most often, most often, the victims of Muslim terrorism and the victims of uh, uh, Muslim crime are other Muslims because most of them are turned off by terrorism and most of them are turned off terribly by some of the chaos that's going on and has been brought on their lands by Sharia law and extremism. They're trying to flee and leave. They get moderate and it incurs the wrath of the terrorists. It does. You're going to think about that when you read this text. And I want us to read verses 11 and 12 carefully. It's not complimentary. It's very, very heartbreaking. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are with child, and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has heard your affliction. He shall be a wild man. He will not have any regard for convention. He will not have any regard for social expectation. He'll be wild. He'll break those bonds. His hand shall be against every man. That's Ishmael. And every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. And so he will battle not only the Isaacs and the Jews of the world, he's going to be battling himself. Now, here's the point I'm trying to make. I'm not down on our Arab friends or our Muslim friends. In fact, if you go to Israel, most of the Christians there are Palestinian Christians. Oh, and it's a wonderful thing to meet a Palestinian Christian because what you will find among the Palestinian Christians is an intense and deep love for other Arabs and Jews. Where there is peace among the religiously affiliated folks in the Middle East, you find it between Palestinian Christians and Palestinian Jews. Jesus reigns there. So don't be down on these folks. But as far as Ishmael is concerned, in much of the history or some of the history of his people, that's what you've got here. Now listen, what God has said here in the text is Abram or Hagar, The difficulty that you've experienced with Sarai is just the beginning. It's going to get worse. And yet, you know what? God offers her a remedy in grace. She's going to bring into a world a troubled young man, and God is offering her grace. You, You say, how in the world could God do something like that? That question indicates a lack of understanding about the Christian faith. Ladies and gentlemen, listen to me. What what God is promising to Hagar in all the trouble that she's causing is precisely what God promises us despite all the trouble we're causing. Let me tell you something. When you came to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, do you know what happened? God saved you knowing all the trouble you would cause after that decision. And if you came to Christ as a child, most of the trouble you've been in came in afterwards. Most of you weren't running drugs across the Mexican border when you were six years old. God sees you. God knows your future and everything following it and God saves anyway. This is what he's doing in this family. He knows the trouble they're going to bring and yet God brings them grace anyway here in the text. So look what Hagar concludes. In verse 13, then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. Look, you are the God who sees. You're the God who sees my desperate need. You're the God who sees my awful location. You're the God who sees the future of my son. And you have come to meet me and you've taken care of my need. You are the God who sees. Now, if you see, you know. I want to ask you a question. If you're tempted to compromise, let me ask you something. What are the chances that God knows something that you don't know and sees something you don't see? (laughs) What are the chances that God sees the future better than you and I do? What are the chances God knows the details of your health and life and work, your family, your marriage, and knows things that you don't know? Oh, 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 What are the chances God knows your kids better than you do? (laughs) Hey, God acts out of omniscience. It means he knows everything. And because God knows everything, he is discouraging compromise and urging obedience upon his people because he knows. And he communicates that in his word. Well, when we come to the end of this chapter, there's no fixing this. There's no fixing it. And God still offers grace. There were some miners in the nation of Chile who had a problem that there was no fixing. They were 2,000 feet below the earth's surface and the mine collapsed. They couldn't get out, and so they ate a teaspoonful of tuna, had a sip of milk, and a small slice of canned peaches every other day for two months while they were stuck in this mine. No one had lived that long in a mine collapse like that for two months. No one knew what to expect about the oxygen level, about the ability to survive, the impact of the darkness, and and on. They, They didn't know what to expect. All sorts of help was called in from around the world. NASA even got involved in rescuing these Chilean miners. They eventually dug a communication tunnel, and then they dug through. And 2010... These Chilean miners, I believe it was March of 2010, come marching out of this tunnel from their 2,000-foot captivity, celebrating and high-fiving everyone as they come out. A 44-year-old man planning his wedding, or couldn't plan it there. He's waiting for it to happen, planning to show up. A 19-year-old boy, a great-grandfather as well. They come out of the mine you know something? They were in a situation where there was no fixing it. There's not a thing they could do. Someone had to intervene and do it for them. Someone else had to clear the rock. Someone else had to dig the tunnel. Someone else had to penetrate the barrier, and that's the situation we are in. We are in a mess with our sin and guilt before God. Some of those sins are a matter of compromise before God. We can't get out. We're trapped 2,000 sins beneath the surface of holiness. But God has proposed to burrow through through the death and resurrection of Christ and He lets us escape if we'll repent and place faith in Jesus Christ. Well, what do I do? Well, you've got to admit, you're buried under it. James four ten says, Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and he will lift you up in due time. That's what he'll do. You've got to admit, I'm in a mess and it may not be compromise. It may be something else. If you're humble today before God, if you're humble today and you're willing to abhor and set that aside, God will hear you. He's the God who sees. He sees that. And then if you're willing to trust Christ and repent from sin. God will save. God will cleanse. God will lift you up. Acts 26 verse 20, Paul said, we preach repentance towards God in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We we turn away from our captivity. We turn away from our self-imposed captivity. And we turn to Him and we trust the death and resurrection of Christ is sufficient to make us right with God is what we do. Do you know God will cancel your sins today and eliminate them forever and ever and ever, never to bring them up again, if you will repent and place faith in Jesus Christ? He'll do it. Our staff is going to be here, and when we sing in just a moment, you come. You meet one of them. You share your spiritual need, and you may not even know it, but you need someone to pray with you. You come. Others of you have made that decision for Christ. You need to follow Him in baptism. You come. We'll be glad to help you with that. Others of you, God's doing something else in your heart and life. You come. But quickly stand with me, please. Let me pray for us. And we're going to ask God to do a neat work amongst us today. Our Father, how we bless you and thank you for your kindness and your multiplied mercies.